All right, I'll be the crypto investor. Thanks. Well, I think our missing co-host um, owns a little bit of Bitcoin, but it is more of a, a dabbling fantasy. A couple hundred well, bucks. He is morally corrupt. Well, yeah. I mean, he's young, so he's a millennial, and they're 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 destroying the world. Um, and because he isn't here, we can talk bad about him. But welcome to the Practical Operations Podcast. I'm Brendan Diesendorf. I'm Ken Mink. And I'm Jack Neely. We are here to talk about the practical side of operations work. This week, we're talking about the fact that, well, another year has come and gone. 2021, I hardly knew you. Good riddance. Oh, please go away and don't come back. Are you interested in promoting practical experience in the operations, DevOps, and SRE spaces? Consider sponsoring the Practical Operations Podcast. Contact us at sponsor at operations.fm for details. So this is our annual end-of-year episode. We look at kind of what's happened and what we expect to happen in the future. Uh, How we were wrong last year. Oh, yes. Um, we Just were... a little bit. Yeah. Um, some of the reasons... Why did somebody not throw something at us about that Red Hat Linux, Rocky Linux conversation? I have no idea. Jeez. They just wanted we us to use up a lot of airtime for nothing. Apparently. Oof. So last year we were talking about how Kubernetes had essentially won, and that still remains true. Um, it's not a perfect solution, obviously. We'll get to more of that later. But that was dead on. The job market is all bizarre. We have COVID stuff. We have work from home stuff. We have remote hiring. We have cloud migration stuff. Yeah, I think we got that pretty well. Um, but yeah, the Rocky Linux conversation, we, we, we talked for like 25 minutes about an RPM-based distribution that none of us have used and has not come up with I was about to say, and who's used it now? Nope. Yeah, me either. Does Amazon Linux count? Nope. <laughs> yeah, I don't Between see... Between Kubernetes and Docker, distributions don't matter anymore to the same degree that they did. I mean, I, I run Ubuntu at home, and my work machine is Ubuntu-based, but by and large, that's a personal preference. The things we do at work, we used to maintain fleets of machines, and it was really important that you had consistent yeah. build systems, consistent packaging systems, consistent, you know, vulnerability scanners that worked on your flavor. And now it's no, it's all in Docker. It's all in Kubernetes. Now you have a consistent CI/CD system, and you know, you just roll through the Docker images. Yeah, I wish we had all the fancy tools and stuff. We don't, but we still don't care because we have enough of them that they're still they're still cattle. I, we little little more effort than than most, but we can still. Oh, we just need the latest to spin it up. Well, I, I mean the royal we, not not like me at work, because right. the industry at large, I think, has moved on from and that, having distributions yes. being super important. I can't remember the last distro conversation I had with anybody, other than, well, what do you use at your desktop at home? Never at work, just personal preference for what you like at home. And it's not like we don't still need them. I mean, having Alpine-based Docker images are really super handy. But it's the fact that, yeah, it's super handy. We've also got Ubuntu Docker images, Debian Docker images, Amazon Linux Docker images, and everything in between. It's really funny. Uh, I don't know, a couple of weeks ago, I was working with a coworker on something, and an old Docker file of mine came up. And they're like, you're using apt here and you're using RPM install here. What's going on? 
And I'm like, oh, it's, it's a multi-stage build. So like halfway through the image, you see where it says, you know, import from whatever. <laughs> it's because the first set of it was in an app-based thing. And the second set of it was an RPM-based thing. And it's fine. And, yeah. you know, you build an image, you copy the things off of it you want, and then you build another image and you keep on going. It's, we, we, we play both kinds of music here. <laughs> Country and same time. <laughs> and that's a joke that the younger listeners will have to ask their parents yeah. about. But no, it is, you're absolutely correct. Distros are, the wars are over and it's not that anybody won. It's now nobody cares. Well, that's the way of a lot of these things. People get really passionate about specific implementation details and then the world moves on and it's like yeah i mean i guess that matters but you spend a lot of time you know tilting at windmills that now don't exist no not everything vm is still vm or vim rules emacs rules it's just the way it <sighs> so later this year not not today but later this year we'll be doing an episode on remote vs code ide stuff um jared's been playing AKA with it. editor holy wars there yeah, you go but that's jared's been playing with it i've been playing with it um my motivation was to be able to get the environment off of my desktop onto my ipad without having to do really bad things and it's actually easier than i thought it would be so we'll, we'll get there later in the year that that's that's coming um other interesting things back to our prognostications from last year my I don't, I don't know about you guys but my coworkers, the quality of video conferencing and the etiquette of muting has gotten dramatically better oh absolutely and it's not just with coworkers, with vendors um unfortunately running linux as a desktop i don't get to take advantage of the virtual backgrounding in them but anybody else does and that's you know Companies have now branded their backgrounds and, you know, you go on a conference call, everybody's got the same background and they know how to mute and they know, and they have a good connection. They have good etiquette. It is so, so improved. The biggest thing I've seen is folks know how to mute and I'm not asking people or wishing somebody was staying muted. Um, As far as the next step in that of, you know, having a decent headset or a pair of Apple uh, earphones, um, which are miles far and beyond better, the microphone in your laptop, um, that quite hasn't caught on, but at least people mute. Yeah. Well, also Zoom and Google conferencing and all the other platforms I, I use, they're doing a better job at background noise suppression. So even when two people are trying to talk and neither are muted because they're both having like a live conversation, there's less echo and kind of nasty artifact. It's generally getting better. They're doing better, but if you're using Linux as your as your laptop OS, it's still a crapshoot on what the video conference app will choose as its microphone and head and speakers, no matter what it tells you. Yes, well, I'm you know, pointing last at year was teams. the year of Linux on the desktop. Well, yes, and and yes, I'm pointing at Teams as <laughs> the the biggest culprit on that of. You launch it in Linux, and it's rolling the dice of what it chooses as it's in and out. Um, and sometimes even what it says it's chosen, it has not actually chosen, which is even more fun. Um, but that's that's a whole, I mean, it's a Microsoft product on Linux. What do you expect? Audio in Linux, still the worst. 
But overall, yes, the quality of everything has improved with the work from home video. So looking back on this last year, um, there's been a lot of train wrecks. Well, yes. Um, <laughs> really staggeringly bad. Just craziness. Um, the most recent one, of course, is log for shell, the log for J, J and D I L exploit that apparently has been in the code base for like eight years now. Hey. And that just keeps on giving. Um, somebody discovered in the end of November, end of November, that essentially a properly formatted string sent to the logging library would cause the logging library to go look up a server, download code from that server, deserialize that code, and then execute it as the user of the process. Uh... And you didn't have to have an open port. You didn't have to have all those things. All the server needed that was running the code was to have the ability to reach out to the internet at all. Through a proxy? Sure. Direct internet? Sure. Whatever. NAT gateway? No problem. And... This one hurts the, so much. This is the worst security issue I have seen. Yeah. And, and I mean, other than the Solaris bug, where you could tell that in as a route to that random port, uh, it, this is bad. Yeah. I mean, part of why it was so bad was it was so trivial to exploit. Put some code in a server somewhere that was accessible to the world, and then set your user agent string in your browser to that server with the right formatting on it and then go surf the web and watch servers crash or whatever it and folks if you haven't updated your refrigerator and your toaster they're probably vulnerable too well that's the problem yeah that's the real scary part is how prevalent log4j is and how prevalent java is and all these embedded systems that you have in your house and don't realize I work for a very large organization and they got wind of it relatively early in the, like, okay, there's a patch available. We're all going to get working on the patch and rolling it out. And everybody stopped work at a large organization to you go through and you figure out which parts of infrastructure are vulnerable and you're going to patch it and you're going to work weekends and you're going to work nights and you're going to get this done because this is the most important thing we can do right now, which is honestly the appropriate response to a vulnerability this size. But we're lucky. We have a security team that on the first day that the patch was available said, here's exactly what you need to do. We've identified the people who have problems to run it. Like, let's get this done. When the second patch came out, because (laughs) there were companies... like patch four or five now? I think we're on four. So when the second patch came out, so 2.15.0 was supposed to fix everything. It had issues. So when 2.16 was released and people were talking about, like, okay, how to roll it out. I saw chatter on in various places. Companies still trying to figure out, like, are we vulnerable? Like, ooh, that's that's not so good. But as you mentioned a minute ago, like, I remember it was a really big deal that Blu-ray players ran Java back in the day. Yeah. What embedded devices do you have that run that run Netflix that run Java and have an old version of this library on them? and are just waiting. And the vendor is either out of business or doesn't care enough or the the person who owns it does not know that they have a device that runs Java. And now for years, we're going to have this kind of lingering train wreck of a security vulnerability that just sort of 
pops up occasionally and oh it's log for j again mm. yeah filter that out the firewall but one thing that you know, open source code drives our software ecosystem i've seen surveys that estimate that most any code base that we write nowadays is about 70% open source components. And there are a lot of Java open source components, Log4j being one of them. But this is just really an example of how not well managing your, your security pipeline, your open source pipeline can affect your company, your product, uh, your reputation in the long run. Um, so I, I see this as a wake-up call, and I see this as 2022 will be the year of open source security. And, and honestly, I, I'll agree with the, that. But I, you know, what what could you do as an individual in anything but you know a super large organization? Do you use things? Log4j's in there. It's this vulnerability has been around for ages. You either go with all closed source software because, well, you have somebody to blame, or you, or you not invented here, or, or you don't, and that's you know what do you do? How do how do you protect yourself against something at this level? Because honestly, at a tiny company, I don't know what I could what what I could I have done differently. And there's been for a long time the issue of of how do we compensate and encourage open source software developers to keep their uh, libraries and the tools that they write that are so well used up to date, uh, keeping patches merged in and all that stuff. We're all familiar with the fact that, you know, Hey, we have a patch for an open source project that never gets merged in because the owners are yeah. too busy at their normal day jobs. And, and that is all true. I mean, no offense, some of those larger corporations that use this stuff should be contributing back. And oh, they oh, should. And they do. You know, um, and, but that's what I'm saying. You know, software is written by human beings who screw up sometimes. Even the closed source versions. Yeah. So this uh, is as one you of mentioned things. earlier, Solaris telling wide open. Yeah. That's not open source. <laughs> no, not even a little bit. Yeah. But. So, this is one of the few places that I strongly recommend smaller organizations, especially small organizations, that if you don't have a dedicated security team, there are vendors that will do things like Docker container scanning and all kinds of things, not for specifically vulnerabilities, but when somebody comes to you and says, hey, this version of, this version of OpenSSH or OpenSSL or Log4j or yeah. down the list has a significant problem, where are you using it? And, and, and you say, and at I, least you have some sort of inventory. Right. I don't of, think you uh, can. What Docker image is using what? Yeah, you can't protect yourself in the sense of not getting this one in the first place. But you can put things in place so that when stuff like this is discovered, you can mitigate it quickly and easily. Or yeah. quicker and easier. Or at least know these are the systems that are vulnerable. This is where to focus our effort. Right. So... Because I'll be honest, with this hit, do we have a, do we have this anywhere? Well, I know we do, but I have no idea where where we have to start searching because we didn't know. 
So one of my friends um, works at a tech company in the Raleigh area. And I asked if they were dealing with this. And he laughed. And he's like, no, we're an entirely a Ruby shop. Everything runs on Rails. So we we have our own problems at times. But this particular thing, we don't run any Java code at all. So no, we're good. And looking at them enviously. So my college roommate runs a company called Tidelift. And... I'm very much thinking of him because I bet he has uh, gotten a lot of publicity from the Log4j stuff. Uh, Tidelift's mission in life is to, more or less, they provide a subscription service for open source software, but they invest in that open source software. They pay the open source maintainers to help keep that uh, software up to date and enterprise quality. So it helps you control your your supply chain for your open source. And when crap like this happens, we know that we have an updated, uh, maintained log4j library that's available that you can just pull back into your code. And I'm more and more, I'm starting to see sort of the brilliance in how do you set up an ecosystem around open source that, that encourages folks to maintain and work on really what a lot of us love is our hobbies, our open source code that, that we found to be really handy and ended up being used around the world. Um, so I think that's, that plays in really well and is a really cool part of the story. Well, the other part about that, the, the reason why I think Tidelift is such a good thing is a lot of these libraries, like a logging library that is used by a bazillion people, it isn't an interesting clustering algorithm. It isn't a rendering engine. It isn't a neural network. It isn't the, the kind of the hot things that people really want to dig into. So it's harder to attract open source maintainers just out of interest. You need to find a way to compensate them in some way to have them work on these projects because they aren't as shiny. They aren't as titillating. Yeah. So yeah, it's a good thing to do. A salary makes things a lot more interesting. Mm-hmm. Always does. <laughs> so I'm assuming that we'll be talking more about software vulnerabilities, in particular this one, as the year goes on. I'm hoping there's more scrutiny for the projects. Like I remember, I want to say it was OpenSSL. At one point, there were like two maintainers somewhere in the world, and they were like both part-time maintaining essentially the backbone of internet security. And once the, I think it was Heartbleed, was the, the mitigate, yeah. or the, the, the causal incident there, it's gotten a lot more attention and it's in better hands now. But I think we're going to have a lot more focus this coming year on people looking through libraries, looking for vulnerabilities, looking for places we can get ahead of the ball instead of being reactionary like this. It's utterly terrifying the number of open source projects that we don't know, think, well, we know about them, we don't think about them, that are embedded in the distros that are one or two people doing it just because. And everything and if you relies think about, on like, I mean, we brought it before, but LeftPad, the whole somebody in a fit of peak removed an NPM module from the repos and everything on the internet broke because people had just been embedding this like four line yeah. piece of like node module. There's lots of things like that out there. And hopefully this encourages, um, especially the really important ones that are really commonly used to get more scrutiny. So moving on, um, last year we had mentioned that Kubernetes has, has won. And I think they have, I think Kubernetes really has won. And I think the rest of us lost. <laughs> That's a great so way of putting it. Uh, Andreessen, Mark Andreessen in 
2011 wrote an essay um, called Software is Eating the World. And it was essentially positing that everything is going to be software soon. That we're moving in a direction that everything is software, even the things that you don't think are software, like your refrigerator or whatever. It's all moving in that direction. Absolutely. And yes, your refrigerator is software and vulnerable to Log4j. Yep. But it's also the idea that, oh, well, the tech community is separate from us. It's like, no, the tech community is in everything now. And for better or for worse, I'm not going to mention car companies because their fans are very ardent and I don't want them yelling at me. Please yell at us. We'd like to hear you in the comments. <laughs> the... Let's know somebody's out there, please. <laughs> but also, like, it's, it's not just that software is eating the world. It's that software engineering, the software engineering methodologies are eating the world, especially the work, the workplace. And by what I mean that Kubernetes has won, but we lost is Kubernetes has given us a an amazingly centralized framework that we all can rely on that we can talk to other companies and we can share knowledge and we can build APIs and do all these things on and have a really great way to, to, to run applications. And it was written by and for software engineers. Oh uh, yeah. And, and it's only software engineers because it hides all the stuff we care about. Yes. And in many ways it's, it's the open source version of the cloud. We no longer have to code for uh, the Google Cloud Platform or Azure or AWS, deal with US East One again. And again. We write for Kubernetes. And we design for that ecosystem. And it doesn't matter really where we go. You can run it, it anywhere. It's cloud agnostic. It also makes it easy for picking up a vendored piece of software to say, hey, I want. I don't want to write a docker a docker container scanner i will pay a vendor and they give you the pieces you need and it deploys itself into your kubernetes cluster and now you have that software and it's great but it assumes at a base level that everybody is a software engineer that really enjoys tinkering on go code projects and in apis and that is not a safe assumption and it's moving so much behind these inscrutable APIs and these kind of ridiculous ways of handling things. And it's like, but there's more of this field than just software engineering, but it's taking over. We have, we run at our, at, at my work, a framework application environment that was written in house to allow the traders to implement models with a level of abstraction that they can do it on their own and that ends up deploying them as a container in, in a Kubernetes cluster. They don't even know that's what's taking place. They just know that they write their stuff, they run the, they run the CI/CD pipeline, and when it's all done, there's a URL where they can see the output of their code. And it's terrifying what then is hidden from everybody involved. And that's, I, don't get me wrong, I really like Kubernetes, but there is stuff under the covers that just disappears from view. And some of it is downright terrifying. You don't know what libraries are in there. Yeah, they can scan, but you got to do that. Uh, we we got bit everything collapsed and on the pipeline because people were using latest 
And one of the pieces <laughs> had a major release update. And everything exploded. Except that the traders who write their shit, they don't they don't understand all that. They're just going, like, builds are failing. What's going on? I didn't change anything. Ouch. And couple that with things like the, cl- the cloud outages we've had in the past couple of months makes it really hard. Yeah. I mean, Amazon's had three major outages in the last two months, right? U.S. East 1 went down twice and U.S. West 2 went down. And you, when U.S. East goes down... Everybody laughs because it's U.S. East 1. I'm sorry, we run everything in EU West 1 and we so much of our stuff fails because a lot of back-end stuff flows through U.S. East 1 even though they don't tell you. Yeah. Yeah, like Amazon Remember, tells folks, us all to Virginia be... is for lovers. Ohio is for reliability. <laughs> <laughs> you know, Amazon has all, all these white papers about you should never do anything in single region and single zone and all these things, and you should be. And it's yeah, some of their services are funneled entirely through like there's one rack in U.S. East one that everything in Amazon runs on, or touches at least once on its way through, and that's not so good. Um, other outages, like PagerDuty was down, I don't know, a couple of weeks ago for several hours. And that was really frustrating because we use them as our alerting platform at the moment. And when your alerting platform goes down, hmm, how do you alert them that it's down? <laughs> well, you know that the alert platform's down when the pager is silent. Yeah. <laughs> You're doing it wrong. Um, yeah, but... We've had a number of high-profile cloud outages, and with the shift of the workforce to working from home and the further reliance on the cloud and all of these things kind of coming together, coupled with Log4j, it's going to be out there. We're going to have more outages. We're going to have more issues and incidents where things are just sort of falling apart for unknown reasons, either being crashed by people who are just having fun being script kitties or being attacked by, you know, as as high as nation states we're going to have more amusing hmm, issues when it comes to hosted platforms and hosted services and we should be vigilant and aware that the things that we pay for and the things that we assume will always be there may have issues yay business continuity (laughs) and disaster recovery plans the fun parts and that's the thing it's hard to you know what's what's the solution oh we're not going to go to the cloud no there's you can't go that route so what do you do one more expensive option so you could do hybrid cloud you could do multi-cloud oh wait no that that makes it worse (laughs) it's it's you plan for it rather than plan to try to get around it yeah and my assumption when people start talking about being multi-cloud is being is trying to approach taking that journey toward being cloud agnostic and really that's that's not what people are doing when they're being multi-cloud they're using a bunch of different vendors a bunch of different tools that come together to form the product the code base the service and so now you have dependencies against multiple different regions in aws you have dependencies against the your monitoring service that's in gcp you have dependencies against this Cracker Barrel thing that's running in DigitalOcean. And so 
you don't have less single forts, uh, single points of failure. You end up with more and more of them. And so part of my assumption was that you know, thinking about a multi-cloud strategy was thinking about you know, DR and business continuity in the event that you are looking at UBS East one, it's like, we have to move. It is, you know, I'm sitting here going, how, you know, what do you, what do you say about that? How do you, how do you argue against setting yourself up for it? And unfortunately you can't. That's just the, it is the way of the world right now that, you know, software as a service has taken hold and you outsource or you subscribe to so many things now that are mission critical or baked into your application and very much and i think that's what we need to to realize is you know when you buy into aws you buy into their reliability their disaster recovery model right. which no one's is perfect but the the real answer there is taking advantage of the recovery model that you're already paying for rather than trying to figure out, you know, how to also duplicate everything in, in a different cloud provider. And uh, but that's the thing is, you know, when you get into AWS, the solution to that is multi-region, except that the, the price of trying to do that is astronomical. When yeah, they make and it, then they start selling you consultants and, and, yeah. and yeah. They make it really expensive to move yeah. data around, especially out of the cloud to another cloud or anywhere else, yep. because that's part of how they lock you into their thing. But it also, they have to pay transit somewhere because they have transit costs. So, yeah. Yeah. I, we are not near as resilient as we would like to be. Well, you're not as resilient as we like to think we are, as we tell each other we are. And so maybe that's it. Maybe yeah. I'm doing it eyes open more than with blinders, but it's because of cost. We have made the business decision that running multi-region is more expensive than the downtime. And so we don't. And I think we've all made that decision. And that's perfectly valid. I mean, US East 1 went down, but how long did it take to, to be restored? Is that downtime more or less expensive than moving and standing up your services in a different region? And and in that one, it was definitely less. I mean, exactly. One, it also hit us after hours our time. That, when you care a lot less. Yeah, and <laughs> we. I, I gotta admit, it's really nice that we're not on call after hours because it's it, really nice not to have customers. Well, then there's that. We don't have customers. But even still, our mission critical stuff is pretty much business hours. It's trading hours actually, which are even different. But regardless, it and and but that's why we've made that decision. Is that the cost of running everything multi-region would be a twenty-four-seven cost and is significant, and the the hits are frequent enough or infrequent enough, rather. We don't do it, but it is a it is an eyes open decision, which is different. Yes, than just be eyes open. Yeah. So the next thing on the list or on our list is this kind of work from home, mental health, employer retention, 
it's another rolling train wreck that's been going on for a while. Um, again, spurn or started by COVID, but it's becoming more of a long-term company strategy. It seems. I I think actually COVID brought it into everybody's awareness, but long before COVID, um, I had an employer. Well, the employer we all worked at together was all work from home, but before that. I worked at one that had work from home days. We didn't have to be in the office every day of the week. And we had employees pushing for more of that. So, and that was now 10 years ago. Um, so this is, I don't think, I think technology has made this easier and COVID brought that out. Yeah, seven years ago when I started my first full-time work-from-home job that my boss lived many states away from me, people looked at me like, it was crazy. Like, hey, you can work from home and it's not like a scam telemarketing job. It's like actually yeah, a real exactly. job job. And I'm like, yeah, and I get to work from home. Yep. And they're like, wow, I don't think I could do that. And now that we've been kind of forced to, a lot of people are going, you know, this is less bad than I thought. But there are significant costs. This is actually preferable. Well, in some ways. There are a lot of costs from working from home that people don't take into account, and especially the mental health challenges of Absolutely. never leaving your house, never seeing other people in person, um, not being forced to take a shower every morning before you go to work kind of thing. <laughs> it it can be really draining if you're not aware that these things are happening. Yeah. And it's also really easy for employees to get to burnout because they're like, well, my, my computer's right here. I may as well just work on it and work on it and work on it. And they put in... 90 hour weeks and that is not healthy or okay i i have yet to... and combined with a great resignation and the ability to work from any company from the back of your house um especially in tech there's a lot of job movement happening yes and as covid has driven the demand for more cloud services it, there's more and more positions available um so it kind of feeds back on itself as we shift around as more of us, you know, step up for better paying jobs or with better benefits. And, and I really think that this next coming up year will be sort of dealing with some of the mental health aspects of our new work from home nature and how we sort of recover from, from, from what the pandemic has done to us to be safe. Yeah, and one of the other parts of the work from home thing that really bothers me and worries me is marginalized communities have always had more difficulty getting the interview or getting into the thing yes. or joining the workplace community or being part of office culture or whatever it is. And this just raises the bar even higher. Yeah. A lot of us got started by doing help desk and seeing a lot of people and then going to conferences and meeting a lot of people. And conferences are all now remote, so you don't have the hallway track. You don't have yeah. those social and you go to a conference for the hallway track. I mean, yeah. these conferences online are kind of, well, sucky. Yeah. And we, having been in this field for quite a while, don't need that in the same way. But for a lot of folks, especially people in communities that are, again, marginalized or under, underrepresented in tech, this makes it even harder for them to join this workforce and succeed here. And that is awful. And it really, really worries me. 
and I don't know to do it. I don't, I don't know what we can do to fix that or to make that better. And that pulls at threads that are very common in our society as a whole. And is something we all need to work on through tech and through our society as, as a whole. And hopefully, hopefully, when we come out of this, we'll realize that work from home, Zoom technologies that allow us to you know, collaborate from across the world truly do allow us to collaborate across the world and across cultures and across the neighborhood, um, which gives me the opportunity to work with a really diverse set of people. And hopefully that, that makes me a better person and our company, a better product. Uh, I mean, the, um, the, the remote aspect of, you know, working distance is obvious. Hey, look at this right now. I am 6,000 away, 6,000 miles away from the two of you. This, it works. Um, is that Imperial speak you're using? I know. Okay. I'm 10,000 kilometers away from you guys. <laughs> That's better. Come on. But but it's true. I mean, we do this every other week and, you know, on occasion in between, and it works. And it, I have a coworker who is in Houston. I've never met in person. I deal with her all the time. She's a, a salaried employee of, of the same company, and it does work. But it also opens up... <laughs> Like now, when you're looking for for people, I'm competing against everybody everywhere. Reddit there. in October of 2020 put out a post saying that they were essentially in the U.S. for remote work, not going to do the segmented or geolocated salary bands or saying, oh, well, if you live in this part of the country, you get paid more. And if you live in you know a, a less expensive part of the country, you get paid less. Reddit said, no, we're going to have everybody get paid essentially the same salary. So if you're a software engineer in San Francisco and you get paid the crazy tech tech bro money, but you move to Kansas, we're not going to cut your pay. You're going to keep your salary and that's fine. And part of what that means is that the job market has fundamentally changed so long as remote work stays because it opens up salary and mobility benefits to people that were never conceivable before. And it yeah. also makes it a seller's market. If you are in yes. tech and you want a new job, it is not a difficult thing to go find a new job. It's not. The flip side is if you're in tech and you have open positions, it is challenging. Oh yeah. But it's tough too. Cause there is so much value. I I'm not going in anymore. Numbers are too high. And for me, it's an hour train ride. So you know, nothing like climbing into an incubation tube for an hour. But the value in the office, the bandwidth of communication, there are no tools out there that even come close to face-to-face -face in a room with a whiteboard. The flip side is, there's also the other coworkers who come to your desk wanting to chat or with problems or whatever that you can't duck because you're sitting there. I don't disagree. At with least you. they, you know, see you at your desk and they can queue up rather than just all <laughs> of them DM you at the same time. There is that. Slack will be the death of us. Oh yeah. If it keeps working, which is debatable. <laughs> well, as, as a quick aside, I, 
been working getting, getting an iPad set up as a kind of around the house remote whatever station and the Slack app on the iPad is just hot garbage. It is so bad. <sighs> well, they're using the same code base everywhere. Thank you now. And it's not just the iPad. <sighs> I miss you, IRC. <laughs> so, Jack, what's this Web 3.0 thing? Um, That's a question I was going to ask you. <laughs> Good, because I mean, the Web 3.0 memes are everywhere. Everybody's talking about this next generation of the web and it's laughably bad. I mean, it's laughably brilliant. It is if you're, it, I mean, brilliant if you're raising money to do it because it doesn't, I can't figure out what the hell Apparently if you about. can use, say blockchain, yeah. everybody will give you money. Yeah. I, I get the sense that it's the blockchain bros and the NFT bros have all gotten together and said, hang on, we can, we can talk about making a, the utopian future of data sharing and whatever and make a lot of money doing it. And so they're, they're essentially just trying to go get super rich quickly. And it, I don't think it has any legs. I really don't, but it has, there's so much ink that's spilled now about it that we have to kind of keep, keep an eye on it. But. <sighs> and it's the concept of instead of the big companies, the fang companies sort of ruling the internet, uh, you have control over your own data and and those records, those transactions are all, you know, a public ledger. Um, so that puts you in control of your data. You own your data rather than who knows what, you know, some company is doing with the personal data you gave them. You know, that said that, you know, sounds really awesome and, you know, kind of like the old days of open source, but it's not going to happen. Well, <laughs> How do you own your data? But the idea of digital ownership, um, the idea of of decentralized financing and you know, being able to take out loans from a distributed source instead of a bank. Um, there's some interesting tools that are happening there that are really starting to ramp up to see who's going to win this fight, uh, who has the better algorithm, who has the fastest algorithm. Um. But yeah, I'm I'm concerned of the source of hype that's happening here. Well, also, blockchain technology enthusiasts are supporting a technology that is, at its core, morally bankrupt. And if it wasn't before, it's even more so now. Yeah. Algorithms don't have morals? No, the... Let's no, burn idle they, electricity yeah. to mine they do something. wreck environments. Yeah. So we can get Very rich true. and help people sell drugs. Like, okay. And there are other um, algorithms that are not based on proof of work. There are. Pr- proof of stake A lot stuff. of them are. But it's, again... Again, if you want a GPU and can't have them, you know where they are. Sorry, I'm just pulling up the, the Bitcoin price index right now. It is... <laughs> It is up 37% in the last six months, but it is down 18% in the last month. So it's a very volatile ride, but a lot of folks are clinging to it and, you know, hanging on to it because it is their get rich quick scheme. And how many kilotons of coal have they burned in that time? And that's my problem. 
simply because somebody somewhere decided it was worth money and then anyway i i am pessimistic on blockchain anything i am pessimistic on both the technology being viable long term or on the effects on society being positive it's just a it's a bad one so have any of you ever actually looked at the Gartner stuff? No. I'm serious. Like, have any of you ever actually once looked at the, upon like, the a time? Uh, if you get your company on the charts, yeah. um, it's really good for your company. Um, 25 years ago, a company I worked at had a had a subscription, and would we could pull up their stuff because we were in a field that it mattered. And I read a few so, papers, but that was longer than Jared was alive ago. So they published a top twelve st- strategy, strategic technology trends for twenty twenty two, and data fabric, cybersecurity mesh, <laughs> privacy enhancing computation. There's all these things, and it's like, hey, that's Bitcoin right there. It's that's blockchain. Decision intelligence, cloud native platforms. <laughs> Do they just have an algorithm that takes buzzwords and matches them up with another one and? Spits them out. Hyper automation. Holy crap. <laughs> you know, none of this makes any sense, and we'll we'll put a link to the show notes for for the humor value of it. Um, Autonomic systems. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, it's. I could have written the buzzword generator that's... and produced a better article. But I, I had to throw it because as I was doing research for this episode, I came across this and. You know, the Gartner t- technology quadrant thing that comes out every so often yeah. is one of those old, like you have, you hired an MBA to run your tech company and they are running it by like the, the playbook of the MBA, whatever. And so they look at, at the, at the technology quadrant to see what the safe thing to work on is. <laughs> and, Here, we have wow. to do this. It's in the top left quadrant. We have to do this or right, top right, whatever it is. Yeah. It doesn't really matter, honestly. But if you're looking for a good laugh, it's it's a good list to it's a good one kind of joke your way through. Um, and the last thing on my list is quantum. Google made a big deal about it at their I/O conference this summer. IBM has a quantum developer certification and a commercially available quantum computing environment that you can go do work on now. It's it's gone from being a theoretical in the laboratory thing to a you can go rent time on a quantum computer. And do what? And it's interesting. Say what? And do what? AWS also has their own as well. Yeah. Oh, Amazon Bracket? So I'm not sure what you do with it, but a friend of mine who's a software developer that, that I take seriously is <laughs> going to go for the quantum developer certification program just because why not? Like it interests him and he doesn't have kids to, to chew up a lot of his free time. And I'm tempted to join him and like go through the go through the process. Because we've heard so much about quantum for so many years in terms of computing. The next generation of computing is supposed to be uh, optronic. Come on. But this is here now. This is no longer a next generation. This is no longer five to ten years in the future. This is now a you can go do stuff with it. And I'm really curious to know what kinds of things you can do. Yeah. I It has been, you know, talked about for ages and supposed to be the next big thing and how everything's going to work in the future 
Okay. It's just getting there. I'm old enough to figure I'm going to be retired before it's really mainstream, so. <laughs> That's one way to look at it. <laughs> well, I hate to be the old man to safe. tell you to get off my yard, but. Got it in my Schrodinger's box. Yeah, I look forward to integrating this into my Kubernetes cluster. Yeah, so that's that's the year. Um, it's COVID shows no signs of slowing down at this point. Um, I know. Depending on how you pronounce Greek letters, the the newest variant seems to be both worse and less bad than previous variants. Um, I have coworkers who are not feeling well, and I suspect that it might be this, and we'll find out. But I have largely been untouched by it, thankfully, after, what, 18 months, 20 months now of this of this particular rolling train wreck. And it's going to continue to dominate a lot of conversations, a lot of public policy, a lot of tech decisions, a lot of work from home. Like, it's, it's going to be here for a while. And nobody can really predict it well. I mean, we famously, famously might be a strong word, but we had <laughs> prognosticated when things shut down in the March of 2020, it's like, oh yeah, it'll be a couple of months. Yeah, uh, you know, 12 weeks or so. Sure. 20, we'll be better, you yeah. know, by Christmas. 22 months later, 21 months later. Yeah, we're about to celebrate our one year in the house here. And we haven't seen Jack. Well, I haven't seen Jack in even longer, but we haven't seen Jack. Hi, I'm right here. I haven't seen anything of Europe yet after being here a year and a half. And a year in this house. It's really frustrating and depressing. Yeah. So I am I am hopeful and optimistic that the medical scientists are able to find ways to mitigate and whatever else. But I'm also not expecting it to happen soon. I'd love to have it to happen soon, but we're kind of where we are. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with your friends and coworkers. We would also appreciate folks taking the time to rate the show in Overcast, Apple Podcasts, or a pure podcast directory. Additionally, we welcome feedback about shows we've recorded or topics you would like us to cover. Leave us a comment on the website at operations.fm or send your thoughts on email, feedback at operations.fm. And that wraps it up for this episode of the Practical Operations Podcast. I'm Brendan Diesendorf. I'm Ken Mink. And I'm Jack Neely. Thanks. And good COVID. I mean, good night. Do us all a favor. Get vaccinated. For the love of God. And open telemetry will continue to not be a real thing. <laughs> <laughs>